the challenge is, is we live in this world where it's all about binging and endless buffets and more, 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 more. But the reality is, is the things that we feel the best about, the things that uh, create the highest value, and honestly, the things that we end up craving more of, it's because it's less but higher quality, more elegant, just a better overall product. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. Let's have our pre, pre-episode food chat. So, what are you craving? I, I'm crave. Well, I'm always craving sandwiches, uh, and I think it's because I'm not blessed like you to live in a place where uh, I can go get a really high quality deli sandwich. It just is very rare uh, here, so I'm always craving sandwiches. Uh, but I, I don't know if it's French inspired or not, but. I'm I'm really into these like super simple uh, sandwiches right now, um, and the one I want to make today is you take a baguette, you split it in half. One half of it you spread like a good quality mustard. The other half of it you spread like a really good quality butter, like a nice oh, Irish butter or something. And then you go slices of ham, um, brie, and then just a simple arugula salad that you've dressed with like some good olive oil and salt and pepper, and that's it. Interesting. That that sounds sounds actually really good. Yeah. So I'm super craving that. So I yeah. I think that's what I'm going to uh, run to the store to grab stuff to make after we're done. Nice. I want to see pictures. Yeah. yeah. We hear a report. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It, part of my curse in living here, though, is is I can't partake in any of the good deli sandwiches. Is it the bread? The, gluten, the, glu- the bread. Yeah. Well, you could do the uh, the craze right now is the chopped Italian sandwich. Okay. You could I'm just. A, I'm do, ears. I'm have you ears. have you seen it? I mean, I think I have an I, I have an image of what I think you're going to say, but I'm not going to. Assume so that. basically, they throw, and 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 the and the more sloppy they are to throw this together, it seems like the better the sandwich comes out. But you throw all the ingredients of a classic Italian hoagie onto your cutting board. So your 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 lettuce, your cold cuts, your cheese, your your olive oil, your red wine vinegar, your oregano, what you know, whatever you put in your classic Italian, and then you just chop the shit out of that stuff and like chop it all together into this kind of mash of chopped ingredients, and then you load that in a hoagie and that's a chopped Italian. But you could do that and just have it as a as a salad, yeah. right? Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, I do know of a few places that do like you know some form of like a hoagie salad. Yeah. So all of all of the lunch meat chopped up and you know put into the salad. So I mean, and don't get me wrong, that is good. But yeah, I will say since I've eliminated gluten and pretty much grains, because I'll be honest with you, gluten free bread has come a long way, but it's still not yeah, the same. Yeah, it's, not, it's the not the same. What about like, what about a gluten free pasta? Uh, believe it or not, like that, it tastes good in the moment, but it usually wrecks me. Uh, like, 
like the the digestive issues like i eat it because like you know like my wife wants pasta Let, let's just say it like she you know so she feels bad like making that and you know letting me just kind of fend for myself even though i'm like you know what when it comes to dinner like if you really want something i can't eat i don't care like if, if it's one night it's like i really want this i'm gonna have this i'm like okay fine i'll make something else but she's constantly searching for different kinds of gluten-free pastas and the ones that are made with like gluten-free grains they just fall apart like they just they 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 come apart as you're eating them. Mm. There's a couple um, a couple bean ones that she's found, um, chickpea um, being one, and um, a couple others. What about a what about a t- uh, potato based one with some sort of gluten free starch to bind it together? The the gluten free starch doesn't it, it doesn't, doesn't keep bind. Like, yeah, it doesn't bind it well. So the chickpea Jeez. ones and a couple of the other ones. The couple of the other like lentil ones are are usually the best when it comes to like eating it, but it's just for some reason it wrecks me the other way. Understood. Well, I'm I'm sorry. Well, yeah, you're, you're just gonna have to go the salad route then. I am. Well, that's what I do. I usually get the get the salad route, or I get like a burger on a bed of lettuce and and whatnot. But I will say like I save the gluten free buns when I want like a, just a good burger. Yeah. And I don't want to eat it as a salad. Yeah. Has has. I, I don't. He has been on this in and out kick lately. Has she like shared her like uh, is is it infatuation or maybe addiction with uh, the uh, what what is it called? Um, I can't remember the name of it. Hold on, I gotta look it up. Okay, look it up. Uh, what is it called? What is it called? What is it called? It's it's like a name of a ship, right? Mm, I can't remember it now. I can't find it. This is this is super engaging uh, <laughs> content. Anyway, there's there's a burger style that you can. Oh, the Flying Dutchman. Hmm. Uh, and I think what it is is that you do two burgers. Two pieces of cheese, and that's the sandwich. But she has this, uh, and I think it's because it's famous on TikTok. There's a modification of the Flying Dutchman where they use grilled onions as the bun. Oh. So you have grilled onion, cheese burger, cheese burger, grilled of it. onion. That looks phenomenal. She's super addicted to it right now. I'm gonna ask her about it because about unfortunately, it. there's no In and Out burgers around me. So. I'm sure your favorite burger joint can adjust accordingly. They do. Like a lot of the places around me, like I get like a cheesesteak in a bowl. And believe it or not, I really, really enjoy that. Mm. The way they mix it up, melt the cheese in there, put the fried mm-hmm. onions in. It works for me. <laughs> so is it is it all like grain soaked rice and like rice I'm fine. It's okay. grains like wheat, oat, barley. Got it. Got it. Well at least you have rice. Because yeah. the cauliflower rice is good, but it's just no substitute for yeah. proper no, rice. No, I, I can have rice. Like last night we had um, grilled chicken with mushrooms, rice, and a salad. And I guess I should know that because we went to Thai in Vegas and you had rice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not to say that you should know that, but yes, we did. When we yeah. went to, to, to the Thai place, I had rice there. Yeah. And it was fine. Cool. Have you ever had black rice? No. Oh, you should try it. Oh, That's yeah. what we had last night. Mm. Like it's 
it's definitely has its own taste. Um, it's it's really good. You should look okay. for it. Well, I'll check out the uh, market today when I go. Cool, cool. All right. So now that we've done our obligatory <laughs> food talk, <laughs> yeah. Um, today, let, let's go ahead and dive into into our topic. So the last couple episodes, we've been talking about running an analytics organization. Um, our previous episode, we talked about applying Agile and, and you know, how that can help. Today, I want to, um, to talk about something else about it. And, and really, they, <clears throat> the part of this is, is the trend you and I have been seeing for the last three years following the pandemic is <clears throat> analytics teams are, for the most part, um, not fully recovered from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They're, they're much smaller. You know, a lot of organizations if don't. If that's even possible. If it's even possible. <laughs> but like the, those that exist are much smaller. Like they're, they're expecting the team to perform at pre-pandemic levels at, as a smaller team. Um, so I want to look at it and ask the question, like how can you be successful with a smaller analytics team? Because the typical management response to, to deliver more work is, aside from just push your people harder to get more work out of them, is to hire, is to grow the team. We need, we need more people in order to get this work done. We need to hire. Um, you know, that's not happening here. So you have teams that need to perform at a high level as a smaller team without burning out. Yeah. So, you know, how can you do that? Like, is it, is it possible? Like, we'll just start off with like, you know, just a blunt question. Like, is it possible to do? It's absolutely possible. Um, But I think it requires long-term thinking and vision um, and requires a high enough executive leadership to, to provide the team the time needed to build a proper foundation in which they can be successful. Um, and I think there are a couple components, maybe three components, so a few components here that are, are critical. Number one, we and this was kind of a big topic that we talked about, we've talked about a lot this year, and that's the, the concept of sustainability. Uh, I, I think analytics teams have to think about sustainability if they want to be successful, especially as a smaller team. If, if we're not thinking sustainably about our analytics implementation, our data capture, um, our, our reporting frameworks, you know what's going to happen, right? We already see it happening. We have these small teams that are already overwhelmed and where do they spend the bulk of their time? Fixes, data quality issues. There's literally no time to do anything that is seen as proactive or valuable to the business because they're literally spending probably more than a full-time job um, just trying to keep this thing from crumbling and falling down. And so I think, you know, we've long talked about laying the right foundation and getting your house in order, but this is really one of those times where if you're really trying to build, especially at a small size, a highly functional, highly successful analytics team, if you don't have your house stable and in order, you're not going to be successful. Definitely not over the long run. So that's number one. We have to think sustainably about our, our foundation and our analytics kind of uh, framing. Um, and once we've got that done, then I think we really do have some opportunities to be 
incredibly successful. Um, and they're, they're twofold. So once we have that foundation in place, two is we need to be incredibly proactive and have an intense curiosity around the business um, that we support and the specific teams we're supporting, whether that's product or UX or marketing or whatever teams that we're supporting with insights and data, we need to be proactive in learning as much as we can about what those teams are doing, um, the customers they're serving both internally and externally um, in order to use the data that we have to provide them insights that they don't have the ability to, to necessarily see on their own, whether that's lack of skills, lack of time. Um, but ultimately, that's our role. You know, Our role is to proactively provide insights and intelligence to other teams so they can do what they do best. It makes no sense to have a marketer spend 50% of their time doing analysis. We hired them to do marketing. Um, analysis and insights is a critical part of their job, but it should be fed into them primarily. So that's really, I think, the biggest needle that, that we can shift is being proactive in learning about the business and the teams that we support and proactively using data to provide insight and intelligence to, to those teams. I would say the third thing is there's always going to be a component of others using the data. We should, we should reject the idea of hoarding data. And I'm, I'm going to stop short of calling it self-service, but we need to also focus our time on training and mentoring to raise the overall data literacy level in our organizations. So not necessarily saying, hey, every time you have a question, go to this dashboard and answer your own questions. I think... I think that's a, a failing strategy in most situations. We shouldn't be asking, again, uh, marketers to be doing really deep analysis, even if they have the ability to self-serve or even run complex reporting. I think there is a self-service component of basic reports and dashboarding that they should just go and things that I can look up that are kind of known things, I should self-service that. But everything else, I think, should come from um, experienced analysts. However... From my experience, there's been a lot of time waste and lost and lack of efficiency because of low levels of, uh, of, um, of, of understanding the data. And so if we can spend time not necessarily building self-service models, but raising the overall intelligence level when it comes to data of teams within our organizations, they can be a much stronger partner with us as they're looking at data, analyzing the results that we're providing them. Uh, I think that that can go a long way in helping us be more efficient as a small team. So to recap, three things that I see. Number one, we have to start at the foundation level. If we don't have the foundation and our analytics house in order, we already know. It's not a guess, it's not a probability, it's a 100% known outcome that your team is going to be spending the vast majority of their time on maintenance and just trying to keep the whole thing from falling down. So number one, we need to get that in order. Once we have that in order, we need to focus on being proactive in providing insights and reporting and intelligence to the different business units that we support. Once we have that working well, we need to work on training and mentoring um, so that we can raise the overall intelligence level of how the entire company thinks about data. The higher that bar is raised, the more efficient and uh, valuable that we can be as a very small uh, but elite uh, analytics team. Yeah, I like how you, you started with the, the foundation there. Um, because, and, and one thing I want to say here is as you're going through each of these, the one thought 
crossed my mind is that these issues plague an analytics team regardless of size. These plague large teams. Like these are not not issues or problems just because a team is small. We've seen large teams that where each of these areas were not taken care of. So they could throw bodies at Mm -hmm. it, to put it as crudely as possible. They could throw bodies at it, and the problems still existed. Yeah. No, you're 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 absolutely right. Um, you know, it's it becomes they more, become amplified. It becomes yeah, that's they, the right they word. Be, yeah, they become amplified when um, when the team is smaller and they become much more apparent. It's easier to hide when you're a larger team. So, I mean, I think like regardless of size, these are all good things. But the smaller the team, the more urgent it is to tackle these things, especially in the order that you provide them. Start with the foundation, then be proactive, and then encourage data literacy. So let's dive into into each of those. So from managing a, a an analytics team, what does what does sustainable analytics look like? What do you mean when you say get your house in order? Yeah. So I mean, number one, kind of just looking at the breadth of things that we've we've bought. Um, uh, you know, I've I've long said that. Our philosophy is that you shouldn't buy things that you're un, unable or unwilling to commit to maintaining. But that's what we've done as analytics teams is we've bought a lot of stuff um, and we've bought a lot of tools. And as our teams shrink, we simply can't maintain them. And, and, and this shouldn't be a stretch to get people to buy into this concept that if we don't maintain something, it will fall apart. But it is challenging. You know, we have we've had conversations with with clients at the beginning of the pandemic that said things like, well, we'll just put our, you know, MarTech tools on ice until we emerge out of this pandemic and then we'll just thaw them and then everything will be fine. It didn't work like that. It, they began to degrade. You know, they didn't preserve it. Almost Maybe, instantly. Yeah, almost instantly. Maybe they just weren't using cold enough ice, you know, cold enough temperatures to cryogenically freeze it. But almost instantly, these these implementations and tools started to, to fall apart. Um and we can look at examples in our real, you know, in the, our real lives that this happens. You know, think of things that you've bought. You know, you don't have to mistreat it. You don't have to put it out in the rain. Like, set it on a shelf in the garage and don't look at it for a year. Go out there, and it's like it's starting to break down. You know, like if we're not using it, if we're not maintaining it, eventually things just start to break down. And so that it's a it's a trap that we've gotten into that we've rejected this idea of the importance of maintaining the things that we buy. So that from a from a sustainability lens, that's the first thing we need to look at. Have we overbought and is it time to do some spring cleaning? You know, do we really need all these tools? Do we really need all these in, you know integrations? Do we need the the vastness of the implementation of each tool? And that's the next layer of of thinking through this is okay, have we simplified our stack in, in to a way in which we can commit to maintaining what we've owned? That's gotta be the first step. If if we can't maintain it, we gotta get rid of it. So now we've we've simplified our stack. Now we need to simplify within the stack. Do we really need seven hundred different data points? to throw into Adobe Analytics? Do we really need an analytics platform that has deployed a quote unquote magic tag that simply collects every click and interaction and scroll on the site? The answer is no, you don't, because you can't maintain it. 
right? And the and the counter argument is, well, someday you might need that data. You know what? When that someday comes, and if you have a proper analyst, they're going to look at it and say, you know what? This data is shit. We can't use it because we didn't maintain the data. Um, so simplify the stack down to only the tools that you can commit to maintain. Once you've had that, have that done, then simplify within the stack. Do we really, really need all of these data points that we're collecting when, within each of these tools? The answer is probably no. So let's start to simplify it down to the things that we're actually committed to using and maintaining. And again, that's the question we need to constantly be asking ourselves. Am I, am I willing to maintain this? Hey, Jim, we need to deploy 18 new variables to collect this data. Awesome. Are we going to maintain it? No, well, no. Okay. Well, we're not going to do it. Yeah. So um, um, I've been working with a client to help clean up their implementation. The implementation is maybe like 10 years old. They've been using the tool for 10 years. But it's the owner has changed time and time again over those, those years. And at some points in its history, it's even been like maintained by committee. So one person will say, we need this. And someone will say, yeah, let's do it. And then somebody else will configure something else. They have almost 500 custom metrics defined. Like custom, it's an Adobe implementation. So 500 custom events. Guess how many are actually collecting data? Less than 100? Somewhere between a fifth and a tenth. Yeah. Are actually collecting data, but they're enabled people can go in and select them. So you get confusion in the tool. So like you, if you have something like that, you cannot get anywhere near encouraging data literacy and other people within the organization using the tool. If you don't have a handle on what's active, what's being used and what's accurate. It just creates, it just creates a lot of confusion, unnecessary confusion, right? Like if yeah. our, if our goal is to have people engage and really up their level of literacy, it's like, t it's like taking someone that is getting introduced to the basic concepts of math and throwing them an advanced chemistry book and said, and say, here, learn math. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, that's not going to happen. So, you know, why are we why are we purposefully making it more difficult and challenging and overwhelming than it needs to be for the people that we're saying we want them to engage and become smarter at data? Well, we're making it really hard for them to do that. So then the the next phase after that, like after getting getting the house in order and and having something that's sustainable, you were talking about being proactive about the business. Yeah. Um, what does that look like? What are, you know, some you know, some ways that take shape. For me, it starts with just poking and prodding and asking questions. Um, where I first saw this, and and by the way, that could that could potentially come across as irritating. And if people are getting irritated that you're doing it, you're probably doing it right. <laughs> um, and I I first I first saw this and became like super infatuated with with doing it when when I went to work for an online dating company it's when I first met Hila um, she was a SOX compliance analyst at the time but she, but she didn't let that limit her in fact she's like well if I'm going to analyze compliance I need to understand all of these things and she would just like a what is it the Tasmanian devil I don't know. Like, yeah, the Tasmanian devil. I know exactly what you're yeah, talking you know, about. Like a whirlwind kind of run through that business asking questions. Why are we doing this? What's this? What's that? Why is this happening? What is it like asking and all these just questions because she was just insanely curious about how all of this stuff works so that when she did her analysis, 
it was in proper context, she was providing valuable insights and recommendations. And so if we're not doing that, that if we're not that whirlwind, that Tasmanian devil whirlwind of activity, we're we're not we're not interested we're interested enough in the in the business units that that we're providing data for, and um, we're going to provide something average at best if that's the case. We have to be insanely curious. Go around, ask questions, bug the hell out of people. Say, I need thirty minutes of your time. I want to learn about X. It, you know, if you have a call center, you know, push your way in there and say. Hook me up on a on a headset so I can listen into calls for the next t- couple hours. You know, push yourself in. Like you need to be in like discovery mode, and and just learn as much as you can. Ask as many questions as you can. But analysts don't do this. By and large, they don't do this. You know, when we've had instances in the past where we've asked, we've asked analysts like, well, what is? Why does your company have a website? Like, what what do you actually do? Huh. You know, that's a really good question. I don't know, <laughs> you know? And, and so I'm not even talking about like the nuances of, of the business or like small edge cases that your website um, uh, is there for. I'm talking about why do we even have a website? Oh, geez, that's a good question. I never thought to ask that. You know, well, we should be asking those questions. Um, so beyond asking questions, like I, I, I see another part of that being around like setting setting expectations, um, around um, how the team works, how requests come in, how requests are satisfied with the team is working on. Because, you know, another area where I've seen teams get overrun, again, regardless of size, but again, especially exacerbated when the, the team is smaller, mm-hmm. is not having a proper intake queue and being proactive about messaging stakeholders about how requests come in how data is distributed, all of those pieces. So next thing you know, requests are handled ad hoc via email. And, you know, it's the whoever screams the loudest is the one who gets what they want. Or um, the most recent request is the first one that's jumped on. Yeah. And I think, you know, in order to have a high functioning intake queue, you need to understand the business units that you're supporting. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, this this discovery period, this learning about what your stakeholders need, how they operate, should go into informing how you create that intake. Otherwise, you're going to create just a generic intake that you think is solving the problem, but maybe just amplifies the problem because it's not designed to be an intake for the specific needs of the business units you're supporting. But agreed, like all of these things should come together to help proactively inform the business units to create engaged conversation with the data to create expectations around what your team can supply and what your team can't um, what your team can supply quote unquote out of the box as a self-service mechanism versus what is a custom request and how those are requested um, I think so many people get caught up in the logistics of building the framework of those things without even understanding what they're building it for you know, like we get so excited to build stuff. It, it's we, to say we did it, not actually. Well, to say we did it why. and we like doing it. Like we like yeah. building stuff, right? But then we build something that doesn't actually solve the problem that we were trying to solve for because we were so excited about the build process that we jumped right to the logistics of building. And well, it's a beautiful wall and it's got a great roof over it, but it doesn't actually fit what we were trying to build for from a solutioning standpoint. So we need to slow our roll a little bit on that and take a step back. And again, that's why this discovery process is so important and say, what are we actually trying to solve for? 
and then architect a solution that solves for that. You know what I just thought of when you were saying that? Did you ever see the episode where the Simpsons get a pool? It's one of the early seasons. Is that the one where Bart broke is the Yes, Bart broke same episode, but okay. like toward the beginning of it. You know. Mighty fine barn. No pool, but mighty fine barn. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like they, they just start building and yeah, they build a barn and they don't actually build the pool. Yeah. There's a I think it's also a Simpsons episode where um, he doesn't want to slow down to read the instructions. He just wants to go right to build, and he builds the barbecue grill, and it ends up being... Why doesn't mine look like that? <laughs> it just ends up being like this modern art of barbecue grill pieces stuck in concrete or something. It's one of the best scenes, too, because he, you know, you don't realize it. You think you're seeing the finished product, but it's him looking at yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the image, and then, kind of and then he pulls down. it down and he goes, why doesn't mine look like that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it's a it's a human challenge that we all face that we, we, we love the art of the build. We want to just jump in and build stuff, um, but we have to force ourselves to slow down and think through and understand what we're building, why we're building it think through the process of building it and then build. You know, there may be a few people that are able to just sit down and make it work, but that is an exception. The most of us have to actually sit down, orient ourselves, get our stuff organized, lay out the instructions and go through it in a systematic manner in order to create something that is is meaningful. Yeah. Good episode too. Really good episode. <laughs> and yeah, a good life lesson there too. Yeah. Um so, and then the, the third piece you t- talked about was like encouraging data literacy. So we had a whole episode on self-service, so I don't want to repeat that. Um, we may touch on a couple pieces of it, but you know, a couple episodes ago, we spoke about um, enabling self-service for the organization. Um, but the way you talk about like, you know, not hoarding data and encouraging data literacy, I can see organizations where people are very, very protective of of their of, of of their space of their area and not wanting to to let go yeah like that idea of letting go and providing access into these tools is a very very scary thing and i think that that fear comes from a from a couple couple places like if, if people start using this and i'm not needed you're, you're absolutely right um a couple things so it's a very um understandable place to to be um that we think that we're creating safety by hoarding our knowledge and 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 walling it off from people i have rarely seen that be a long-term winning strategy um but logically in our head it makes sense right like if i'm the only one in the company that knows adobe analytics if i if i keep anyone else from knowing then my job will eternally they can't fire me i can't be let go you know i'll have bargaining power because i'm the only one but does it ever really work out that way i haven't seen it work out that way um it just it just doesn't work um you know we 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 tend to cling to that thing our skills blunt our value blunts and we may be the only one in the company that knows that thing but we're no value no more no longer valuable to the company because we've been so attached to it. And there's a line, there's a sentence in the Tao uh, that I constantly come back to that talks about this. It says, he who clings to his work will create nothing that endures. So, you know, if we want to create something meaningful, we have to let it go. We have to not cling to it. We have to help other people embrace it. Kind of the coaching tree mentality of like, 
I want as many people as possible to understand what it is I do because the more people that do, the more my work is going to live on and have a lasting value. Um, and so from just from my own experience, anecdotally, the people that I've worked with that are hoarders of knowledge um, have progressed very little and often regressed in their career. The people that are willing to share and mentor and teach are the ones that tend to skyrocket in their careers. So, you know, if if you need some side, some sort of visualization to get yourself out of this mindset that I need to protect and cling to my specific domain knowledge, just know that history says that you're going to go backwards and that it may seem counterintuitive, but by by sharing and letting that knowledge go free you're actually going to climb to incredibly high heights. Yeah. About 10 years ago, I had this epiphany when it came to like holding on to something and I'm I'm a very visual person. So like I kind of had this like when I had that moment, I had that visual of like holding on to a clump of sand. And the more you try to hold on to it, the more slips out. So when you open up your hand, there's only a little bit left. And, and the same thing when it comes to work, the more you kind of try to cling on to what you've had, what you've historically been responsible for, the, like, the more you end up losing. You, and you could lose it for multiple reasons. Either you get supplanted by something new or people just come in and just take it from you anyway. Absolutely. And I'll, I'm going to have to dig up this uh, Apollo Robbins clip. He's a pitpocketer, pickpocketer. <laughs> Um, where he uses that technique to take things from people. Like he'll basically say, try to hold on to this thing as hard as possible. And it is in that act of trying to hold on to it that it actually create makes it much easier for him to take that thing from them. Uh, and it's really fascinating to watch, but it kind of is a great visualization for you. You just said like the harder you try to cling to them, the easier it is to separate yourself, you know, those things from you. So we, we have to just let that, that, human desire to cling and hold on to those things go because it's just not in our best interest. Yeah. So when we put that then into the context of, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, put that into the context of a smaller analytics team, you know, I see, you know, I, I see that taking the shape of, of a team trying to hold on to it because we do this, this is our job, but getting overrun by requests and the organization not getting what they need so they end up losing that anyway because it's like they're 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 taken out of the picture completely. People will go around you. This is how organizations run into having multiple ways and multiple tools to measure something. Yeah. This is how organizations come up with three different solutions to measure video interactions. This is how you get a team deploying a Google Analytics because they can't get what they need from Adobe Analytics and then next thing you know what you're not fighting is here's insights I have that's valuable to the organization. You're fighting why my system is better than yours. And we've heard from organizations that bluntly say that that's what they're doing, right? Like I've talked to teams where they said, well, we have an analytics team, um, but man, they're just so difficult to work with. They're very protective of all their data. We can't partner with them. We so we're can't just gonna, get timely requests. Yeah. So we're just going to go build our own. <laughs> I'm like, Really? It's like, yeah, well, what other choice do we have? We're just going to go build our own. I'm like, okay. Yeah. But I, I feel, I mean, I feel their frustration. I, I get it. 
Yeah, and and that's why we're we're trying to come up with you know we're we're discussing like how you come up with a solution that works for everybody. Yeah, yes, you want to be valuable to the organization. You want to drive value um, for um, for the business. But the more you hold on to, especially as a smaller team, the more you're not going to be doing that. The less value you're actually going to provide. Hundred percent. By the way. Going back to the Simpsons episode, I love watching television shows and movies looking for specific hat tips or call outs back to other movies. It's like, I'm so anyway, that you know, the that pool episode is a shout out to Hitchcock's rear, rear window, yes. Um, and so I've been watching, I've been re watching the Seinfeld season, and I don't know how many times I've seen it, but. I just started rewatching it again and I'm finding new movie references to movies um, that I never had picked up before. So anyway, just complete aside. Like I love older Simpsons episodes were great about that, especially the, the Halloween episodes Mm, were mm -hmm. always, I mean like they, they were straight up parodies at times of, of that. But yeah, you're right. Like that's why the older Simpsons episodes are such classics Mm -hmm. because there are those, just those odds to uh, to other movies. I'm gonna date myself, but uh, I haven't kept up on. I, I just haven't watched a lot of recent TV, so I'm out of the loop on the recent stuff. But I I first started watching The Simpsons on the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah, you you've mentioned that. I, I kind of started maybe season two or something yeah. like that. Going back and look at it, looking at it, it was so like rough. It was so but, rough. True. But like, I mean, I was, I, I held on for a long time. Like I remember when they got like the season 14, 15, I was still enjoying it. Everyone's like, oh, you know, they peak, they peak. Jump the shark. I, 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 at this point I'm like, I really can't watch current episodes, but like you go back to season eight, nine, 10, like that's when they were right in the middle of their prime. Yeah. With some great episodes. Yeah. All right. Without going too far off track, have you seen some of the, um, interviews with the creators where they ask about their ability to predict predict the future no i mean i know that's kind of like one of the memes out there about the simpsons but i i haven't seen any specific uh, episodes or interviews about it yeah i mean they they flat out say they don't have the ability to predict the future but it's super interesting to hear it, them it, it's funny how it. sometimes like you know it happens yeah, and I think, and I'll have to go find the links. They, they've done like a mathematical breakdown on it that it says, like, if you've done as many episodes as The Simpsons and make as many cultural references, and the thing is, is that it's not just cultural references, it's their writers are incredibly well-educated and very intelligent. So it's not like they're just writing inane stuff. Like, these are these are super, super smart people that are making cultural references that are really meaningful because they understand the context it's in. But anyway, they did this statistical analysis to say that said, this makes sense. Like we would expect X number of their references to come true just from the sheer volume of references they've made. Because of the, because of the number of episodes, the number of references, the probability is high that they're that's going right. to. That's okay. right. And, and it's, and it's even more amplified because their writers are so smart. They're mm-hmm. they're The references they're making are very highly um, influenced by things that it's logical that that could happen. So yeah. Anyway, super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I don't know how uh, that relates to small analytics teams, but 
Um, well, I mean, kind of like a callback to a couple episodes ago when we started talking about TV a bit. And we were talking about like those shows that they have a limited number of seasons and people constantly go back to rewatch. Like, like I said, like for me, the Simpsons, they're up to season what, 30, 31. I don't even know anymore. Like the volume, like I just, I don't watch it anymore. Whereas you give me a show that's four or five seasons long. There's a chance I'm going to rewatch it. Like Ted Lasso, three seasons. The third season just ended the first season. I can watch over and over again. Um, I mean, not to say that the second and third season are, aren't good. They're actually really good. And overall, it's a great show because it tells one cohesive story. But right now, like to me, that's a, a show I can watch over and over again. The Office, eh, I think kind of fizzled out um, after Steve Carell left. But the first four or five seasons, I can watch over and over again. So I think also one thing as we start to wrap up in this talk about small analytics teams the concept of less is more mm. is is incredibly, um, incredibly important. I feel like if you try to do everything, and yes, this touches a bit on the, the proactive piece we just talked about, the, the data literacy piece, but if you try to do everything as a small team, you're not going to get anything done. Yeah. Everything is going to be half done, um, half complete. Uh, it's not going to satisfy the organization. You gotta focus on what is valuable, and there is a beauty in simplicity, and I've become a complete proponent the last couple of years of less is more. The, the because when you're dealing with that, what you're delivering is high value, high integrity, high quality. Yeah, I you know I couldn't agree more. Um, the challenge is is we live in this world where it's all about binging and endless buffets and more, 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 but. The reality is, is the things that we feel the best about, the things that uh, create the highest value, and honestly, the things that we end up craving more of, it's because it's less, but higher quality, more elegant, just a better overall product. Uh, so we have to reject this notion of like this consumerism more and more and more, and and get away from this measure of our value as uh, just a number of outputs. We need to stop looking at it that at that at that perspective and we need to look at it as it's not how many things we produce it's it's how many valuable things that we produce and more often than not that's that's a function of doing less than more it's like with anything right like custom guitars with randy or custom furniture or you know a, a, a boutique experience at a hotel or a small restaurant the probability that you're going to get something of higher quality higher value that you're just going to love creates a great experience more often than not it's a product of producing less but more value yes because when you're also focusing on less you know like the the time that goes into it the preparation the more you try to do the more scattershot you become and not only are you trying to do more which takes away your attention you're rushing it out whereas yeah. you know when you're focusing on less you're putting that much more attention in because like you know the the attention to detail that goes in. God, what was it yesterday? There was something yesterday that I was, uh, I was looking at something with my wife and I'm just like the attention to detail. You could tell that they care. It's going to come to me later, but it was one of these things where she and I were looking, uh, we're, 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 we're going through something and we saw it and we're like the attention to detail with it is key. So, um, 
that that's part of it. That's yeah. what comes with it. Um, I know I've mentioned it multiple times on the podcast, but there was a client I worked with 15 years ago and they had this dashboard that went out every morning, every morning. And if you were to print it out, it was 15 pages. I'm like, this is not a dashboard. They had pathing reports in there and um, like things broken down by search term. Well, search term itself is important, but like the way they had all of this together, I'm like, there's too much here to consume. And I said, I bet you everyone just ignores this. Like no one actually reads it. No one actually looks at this. Most probably ignore it. And but I mean, you're sending it out to say you send it out. You're sending it out saying we have all of this data, but no one's actually using it. But then you also, someone needs to maintain it because the one day it breaks is the one day someone's going to open and say, oh, this is broken. We need to go in and fix it. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, but it's it seems so logical, but so hard hard to do. But that's the message that we need to hear, and we need to we need to accept it. You know, I I I personally worked with a client um, that that said that our project um, was was a failure, wasn't very good, and they 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 hired us to come in and evaluate why people in their organization weren't consuming the data that their analytics team was producing, and and similar to your experience. I think it was three times a week, they sent out an Excel dashboard that was like eight tabs and each tab had like hundreds of rows. Um, and I came back to them and I said, delete 90% of this stuff. And they're like, well, well, that's not helpful. Like we, we, like we, we hired you to understand why our people aren't reading and opening these emails. I'm like, delete 90% of this stuff and it will fix your problem. (laughs) But they don't want to hear it, you know, because we're so accustomed to more and more and more and we need more, but it's like, we can argue against it, but we have the proof. We have the experience that if, if listen, okay, this is the last thing that I'll say. And I think we talked about it on, maybe it was the last podcast episode. We talked about becoming in, indispensable to your organization. If you're interested in creating Excel workbooks with 20 tabs and 8,000 rows in each tab, if you're if you're measuring the worth of your analytics team by the number of widgets you produce, what did you what do you become? You become a commodity, right? It's commodity. Right, yeah. It's it's a, you're 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 playing this game of producing more at less and less cost. You're a commodity, and are commodities indispensable to your organization? Nope. I can go replace you with any other commodity vendor that will do the exact same thing. If you truly want to be indispensable, especially as a smaller analytics team, stop being so driven by producing more widgets. Produce just a very few number of things, but do it so incredibly well that people in your organization are going to be craving what you're producing and you will become indispensable. You will be successful. Mm -hmm. Very, very well said. Um, so it, it basically it all comes down to so how can a small analytics team succeed? Basically, it comes down to focus on quality over quantity. Easier said than done. Yep. Granted, there's political battles to fight. You need the right leadership for that to happen. Yes. But focusing on quality, not quantity. Absolutely. Cool. Well, good episode. This was this was a fun chat. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up there for for this week because um, I I really like how you kind of ended it there. I don't want to add anything more to it sounds good cool all right so let's wrap up there thank you much and we'll talk to everyone later see ya see ya
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.